Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. Welcome to The Money Show this evening, this Tuesday evening edition. It's brought to you by APSA CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the APSA Insights series. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to the show this evening. We're going to be hearing the voice of the Reserve Bank Governor. He was speaking in Davos earlier today all about inflation and interest rates. I think it's important to um, tap into what he is thinking. Um, we're going to get more details on a really sordid saga that I'm unhappy about. And, and again, the job is to cover the stuff that you like and the stuff that you don't like and to do it with an equal amount of commitment and gusto. But it's one of those stories that makes you very, very sad because you fear it to be true and therefore you interrogate it aggressively as I've been doing today and trying to get to the bottom of it in the hope that you find something that says to you, ooh, I have some doubts here. Um, we'll pick up on that in a moment. Uh, Time Bank is growing nicely. We'll catch up with the CEO, Kun Yonker, the Africa business reporter, and Garth McKenzie, uh, headmaster of the investment school tonight, uh, is joining us. So that is um, some uh, lots of good stuff for you on The Money Show this evening. Uh, on to the World Economic Forum in Davos. Let's catch up with the Reserve Bank Governor, Lesitja Hanyaho. He was speaking to Bloomberg earlier today, the global news agency, talking about inflation. Um, he said uh, inflation has been very, very high. He was asked whether or not he was cut, ready to cut interest rates and he wouldn't commit to cutting interest rates anytime soon. Those who have succeeded, he said, in bringing down inflation to their target ranges will be the first to cut. Real rates in, in South Africa are not particularly high, so he doesn't feel the pressure and the need to cut interest rates anytime soon. Inflation is not where he wants to see it. It's not close to anchoring around 4.5%. So there is a reserve... The, the Rizank follows a mandate from the National Treasury. The National Treasury says you must have a inflation broadly within a range of 3 to 6%. And uh, the Reserve Bank has decided it wants to aim for that midpoint of 4.5. And we headed towards it. And then it was a bit of a mock charge. And we then headed the other way. And we're in the high, in the high 5%, very close to 6% on inflation at the moment. And um, this was on Bloomberg earlier, the Global News Agency. Just have a listen to the conversation between Lesitja Khanyaho and the team on Bloomberg. What you are having is that you have got a whole generation of uh, the public that had known only low inflation and low interest rates. And now inflation has risen and interest rates had to rise. And so um, you have got to rein in inflation because they are intolerant of inflation. And so you will see interest rates being higher for longer until the battle on the inflation front has been won. We've got about a minute left with you, so let's do something provocative. You introduced the topic, though, not me. Sometimes governments make life harder for monetary policy officials. I believe there's a budget coming up, and I'm wondering domestically what you'll be looking for in that budget in South Africa. Well, I, I, I like returning the favour. If the Minister of Finance was sitting here and you asked him what he expects of the uh, central bank, he was going to say that he doesn't venture into that. So I don't venture uh, into that. But they have pronounced... the guard is politics. Why not? They had, uh, well, you see, <laughs> some of these central bankers might, might have been politicians before. I haven't been. True. <laughs> so, okay, carry on. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I think that there had been a, a pronouncement from the South African National Treasury... Uh, 
uh, to set the um, uh, fiscal uh, uh, policy on a sustainable path. I have got no reason to second guess them. I have got every reason that uh, if they had made a commitment, they will meet. Uh, they will meet this commitment. But fiscal policy is not going to be easy this year. There are more than sixty countries going for elections. I know it's a massive year for elections. <laughs> so, so it's not going to be. That easy was to the diplomatic response I expected. Not going down the, the thorny path of politics, but we know that he has said many, many times, of course, at Reserve Bank um, Monetary Policy Committee meetings that government policy is not properly structured. It doesn't help um, the inflation picture and it doesn't help growth. He's been blatantly clear, certainly in South Africa, but wasn't going to go down that slippery slope in Davos this time round. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Well, tonight's really big story gives me no joy whatsoever. The murky tale today of questions around the academic credentials of economist Tabi Lioka. She claims to be in possession of a PhD from the London School of Economics, a prestigious qualification from a prestigious institution. And I checked in earlier with the Business Day editor, Alexander Parker, who said they had no new information, and we'll pick up on that one in a moment, that would cause them to change their story at all. My team and I have been making inquiries all day today independently, and several have been rebuffed, implying again a degree of discomfort around the story and her version of events. And no one, including Tabulioka, has gone, well, look, here's a picture of me at Tower Bridge in my red gown, or here's a copy of the certificate. All we know is that she claims to have a certificate, and we know that the London School of Economics has said we can find no record of this. And we've seen this happen before. She's known, has Tabulioka, that there've been somebody, somebody's been spreading stories about her since December. And I wonder that if you knew that somebody was going around bad-mouthing you, and you were innocent, whether you would collect evidence, whether you would go, all right, let me get my certificate, I'll take a picture of it, get the graduation pics, take some pictures, get a, a certificate from the institution to say, yes, you did complete, and just keep it. Um, if your mum asks you, hey, did you ever do that? Because people are saying you didn't. Or a friend asks, or a colleague asks, or worse, a journalist asks and says, you don't seem to be having the qualification that you claim to have. You can go, there's my little file of information there are the facts, and you, you shouldn't, as an innocent person, have to prove your innocence. But in a world where lies travel halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on in the morning, and if you know that trouble is brewing, you need to prepare for it. I've listened to her interview today with Clement Maniatella. She came through just after 9 o'clock this morning. I thought he was very empathetic. I thought he did very well with the interview, but I felt very uncomfortable with the quality of some of her answers and some of the detail in them. Let's be clear about that. Have a listen to this extract. You can fit the whole interview on Clement's podcast feed. But here's a, here's a taste of what she said this morning. Have you misrepresented your qualifications? Thanks for the question, and the answer is a straight no. Um, Clement, what happened is that a journalist from, initially this started in December, a journalist from the Daily Maverick who was approached by someone who obviously seems to have a personal vendetta, um, contacted me uh, with various questions, including um, my qualifications. Uh, after I, I sent them information and data, and they did their own investigations, um, they then ended up not writing the the article. And then, so I thought that was it. Um, the story is dead. But um, obviously the person who then gave the story initially to the 
Daily Maverick, um, was not happy that the story wasn't published, then went to the business day. The business day contacted contacted me yesterday, mm. but because of the seven hour time difference, I only saw the message in South Africa time 3 p.m. And I was told to respond um, before the end of the day. Now, the question is, I mean, the, I saw the headline and um, which is false. The reason why I left uh, uh, Remgro and I didn't, I, the right word is I opted not to be renominated, was for health issues. And that's why in the SINS report, it says that for personal reasons, there was no firing. So to be clear then, you insist that you hold a PhD in economics from the London School of Economics, right? Absolutely. The Business Can Day I? is reporting that they contacted a spokesperson of the university who says that, and I'm going to quote here, we have checked our Mm. files and can find no record of Tabilioka being awarded a PhD from LSE. How do you explain that? So what happens is that they would definitely generally call the school registrar, because I did the same um, uh, when I was asked by initially uh, Daily Maverick. And they would say, um, we're looking for, let's say as an example, to verify John Smith. And the university would check for John Smith in economics and they wouldn't find John Smith. But actually, I did uh, economics, economic history and economics, and um, they didn't use my full name. So that person would be John Smith Williams. And without verify using the right names, the school wouldn't then um, verify or, or, or confirm a name that is incomplete or the name that is not in their system. Tabi Lioka earlier on today uh, talking to Clement Magnatella. Uh, since then, Clement has done some further sleuthing and has posted on his uh, Twitter feed saying, update on Tabi Lioka after our chat on the hashtag CM show. She sent me her changed names, and after checking, we only picked up a master's and not a PhD. Now, I see Kaya Setole, who is a chartered accountant and is something of a super sleuth on the internet, has done the same thing. He's also found the master's, but not the PhD. Clement continues, she also sent me a document verifying her credentials. Next to the PhD qualification, it says, negative qualification inconsistencies found. Then uh, Clement continues in another tweet saying she says the reason it says negative inconsistencies found is because they also used the wrong name. This is obviously very distressing and very concerning. One point in her favor, though, is that the Daily Maverick, which has been sitting on the story since December, And often you find that when somebody else breaks a story that journalists have been working on, um, the publication that was working on it first then rushes to make sure that it doesn't get beaten to the story too badly. It has not. My producers have contacted them, uh, the Daily Maverick, and they say they're still doing their due diligence. So that is a point in favor of Tabilioka. Remgro um, sent us a statement because we've been on their case today as well. And Remgro said in a statement to us, Remgro is aware of the unconfirmed allegations 
that have been raised in the media against Tabi Lioka. Tabi Lioka was appointed as an independent non-executive director of Remgro, effective 22nd of March 2023, subject to shareholder approval at the AGM. The appointment was, however, not ratified at the Remgro AGM on the 4th of December, as she advised the board that she opted to no longer stand for election as an independent non-executive director of the company due to personal reasons at which point her tenure as a director of Remgro ended. And she explained to Clement this morning that she is suffering from glaucoma in one eye, which is why she opted to not have that uh, appointment ratified. She wasn't asked, and she hasn't explained why, therefore, she's still on the boards of Anglo-American Platinum and MTN South Africa and others. Uh, Remgro continues, and this is where it gets a bit weird, Remgro's values are central to the culture of ethical and moral behavior and compliance. To ensure that these values are upheld, the board recognizes the need to ensure rigor in the process of electing and nominating members to the directorate. Enhanced levels of engagement and transparency remain a priority for Remgro in our commitment to following outcomes advocated by King for an ethical culture, good performance, effective control and legitimacy. Remgro could have stopped the statement at the halfway point, but chose to add all of that other detail in. Well, the guy, uh, the person who broke the story, Cabello Kumalo, is the company's and markets editor at Business Day, and Cabello is with us on The Money Show this evening. Cabello, have you come across anything to change any aspect of the story from this morning's <coughs> edition, which has made the allegation that Tabilioka has some very serious questions to answer around this apparent qualification? No, 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 not at, not at all, uh, Bruce. Uh, in actual fact, I'm still waiting for her to, to, to send me evidence that shows that she does hold this PhD, as she would have promised in my conversation, my 27 minutes conversation with her yesterday. So listening to the Clement interview, she she came across as projecting me as somebody who did not uh, give her sufficient time to respond to the allegations. Yet we were on the phone for 27 minutes, really, uh, with her yesterday. So as it stands, there's nothing really. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, Cabello. In that 27-minute conversation, did you say, could I just Mm. have a copy of a a photograph, a copy of a certificate, just a a title of your dissertation, perhaps find out who your supervisor was, and I could just give them a call and have a chat? I mean, did you ask those sorts of questions? And that she offered, she offered the information to say she will send me all documentation that relates to her PhD. Um, the issue of her having changed names, for example, did not come up with, uh, in our conversation. Not at one stage did she say, hold on, maybe you are checking for a wrong name. I would have changed my names during the course of my career. So I was entirely surprised when I heard those um, sessions being made earlier on uh, on 7.02. So you stand by the story, Cabello, and the, you've seen nothing to change, therefore, um, the the nature of the story that you have, that you've put on there? There's nothing really compelling before me and my editor to suggest that um, our story was incorrect. And I think it was properly well sourced. We confirmed with other sources before we even approached her. So it was well sourced and, and backed up by by people who know who are in the know. 
Cabello, thank you very much indeed. Cabello Kumalo is Companies and Markets Editor at Business Day, standing by the story, saying that it stands up to scrutiny. A number of people I've spoken to today who know Tabilioka better than I do, I've met her once or twice, I've interviewed her many, many times, say, well, the simplest way to do this is just to provide the evidence and then force humble pie. Threatening legal action is one aspect. The The papers have not been served. There's been no letter um, officially to Business Day, as far as I can tell. Listening to all of that, Managing Director Amrop Woodburn Mann, somebody who puts people on boards um, in companies and who helps uh, vet um, board members on behalf of companies is Andrew Woodburn. Um, is th- This is unusual that a high-profile person like this is has their credentials called into question and it raises a bunch of issues, Andrew. One about the integrity of the individual and I don't think we should go there in, at this particular point. Um, but I'm looking at the responses from companies. Say so, uh, nobody's leaping to her defence and saying everyone's got this wrong. Yes, she resigned for personal reasons, but we know that she has got this PhD, and we were satisfied. Our processes showed that she was qualified as she is deemed to be. That rings a bell, an alarm bell for me. Evening, Bruce, and to the listeners. Yeah, I mean the first point in a new year for you and I, Bruce, is we're back here again with qualification fraud or, you know, misinformation, whatever it might be. And I do think you're right, the deafening silence from multiple institutions at this point who should have done their due diligence and would easily be able to um, support the claim of the PhD could have easily solved the problem. In addition, by the way, and you and I both know this, she could have just furnished her student number, a copy of the certificate, Uh, And so I would share with you without making any assertions about the individual's integrity, but you and I have seen these cases before from CEOs, board directors, and so on, is that now we have a number of, let's say, um, responses around name changes, medical reasons, time zones, documents yet to surface, personal vendettas, is beginning to look a little bit like smoke, Um, just as a judgment in terms of how the response has been delivered. And I think the response from the Business Day journalist and others has been reasonable in its requests. But let's talk about institutions. Uh, This is not the only um, negative failing to stand for election that has happened in recent times. And what we're finding is two things happening. The first thing is we're finding that certainly listed companies and the boards themselves in tough economic environments are becoming a lot more risk averse. If you are wanting to stand for a director or an ex-co member or a CEO, uh, you better be absolutely blemish free, squeaky clean, and able to absolutely um, support any claim you've made. Because of this link between whether you are willing to embellish or create fraud around your personal qualifications and whether that then leads to the fact that what would you then say on behalf of the company and so rightly so as economic conditions toughen up results are harder to come by in fact you are looking to your key non-execs and executives to be absolutely transparent accountable authentic in who they are what they say because that is what the employees and the investors and the markets are going to believe and that is getting more and more conservative and rigorous, as Remgro said, before they make an appointment. So when you ask me, is that happening? There is an absolute trend to it happening, uh, certainly in this country and in multiple markets around the world as well.
Um, thank you very much, Andrew Woodburn. Andrew is the Managing Director at Amrop Woodburn Man. Let's watch the story, Andrew, if I can keep you on speed dial on this one. I'd appreciate it. I think there's water yet to flow under this bridge. MTN South Africa said it's waiting for its chief executive um, to com- before it can comment. Uh, Anglo-American Platinum has not responded yet. But if I was in corporate affairs at a large company and the integrity of one of my de- directors was called into question and I was certain that we'd had a good vetting process, I would have issued a statement saying we're confident in our director. But we've had none of that. That, to my mind, is worrying. Let's have a quick look at markets. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Action-led insights in Africa's agricultural sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights Series. APSA's a registered FSP. The Money Show. The Markets. To Wayne McCurry we go from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. The Martin Luther King public holiday didn't sort of calm nerves on markets. Big selling happening in the US, big selling happening across Europe and big selling happening across the JSE today and a big sell for the currency as well. Let's talk markets first and then currency if you would, Wayne. Yeah, Bruce, we're back to where we were sort of the second, third week in December, you know, before the big federal announcement when everything shot through the roof. Uh, we've reversed almost all of those gains now, not quite. And I think it's just a return to this malaise of, you know, when are interest rates going to be cut? So the market's just really directionless at the moment. But, you know, exactly as we were, as I said, um, sort of in the beginning of December, we must not give up hope that the cycle is turned or has turned and the next move in interest rates is down and hopefully the next two to three years, is a much better outlook for South Africa, for our markets, and for the rand. However, the Reserve Bank governor in Davos today, I don't know if you heard the clip, but uh, the governor uh, putting cold water on any expectations of a speedy interest rate cutting process. Uh, he was sort of, until we get inflation anchored and we're confident of anchoring inflation around 4.5%, no rate cuts. And I think he was pretty clear. Yeah, but look, Bruce, what else can they say? You know, they're dependent on data like the rest of us. We'll have to see what the future holds. They don't know the future. We don't know the future. So if inflation doesn't anchor and if it is still too high, then interest rates won't cut. But, you know, the world is, uh, you know, quite a, not precarious, but a difficult economic set of circumstances at the moment. And I still maintain inflation is going to fall despite all the data we're getting out of America, that it will continue to fall and that we will see interest rate cuts this year, maybe even in the first half. And then, of course, you know, with the environment specifically for commodity-producing countries like South Africa changes quite nicely for us. Currency vulnerability, we're starting the the new year on a very big back foot. I see the rand's just gone to 24 to the pound. We've been here many times before, but it's it's an uneasy start for the currency for the year. At least the whole year has been uneasy for the currency, for the share markets. You know, just when we thought everything was, was perfect at the end of December, or at least moving in the right direction, at the end of December, it's just reversed most of that. And the same with the RAND. You know, until we get clear direction on inflation and interest rates, the RAND's going to stay in this 1819 against the dollar type of, type of bracket. It's not as though we haven't been there for a long time already. But I certainly, a couple of weeks ago, thought that the worst was over. But clearly I was wrong. And markets have reversed all of the currency gains we saw when it went from, I think it was 1910 down to 1820. Now it's back at 19 again, essentially. 
Wayne McCurry, thank you. With Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. Bringing us to just gone half past six, uh, Maki Malapu, the latest Eyewitness News, brought to you by Khaliks. Khaliks for the businessman who knows what he wants. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB. Uh, APSA CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the APSA Insight Series. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Uh, Busi Mavuso is standing by for us this evening, the Chief Executive at Business Leadership South Africa. I'm also told that we'll be joined by the Development Bank of South Africa Chair, Ibrahim Rasul, who I've seen quoted in Davos today. He's there. Uh, pick up on some themes on that particular front. And then, uh, yeah, just before Eyewitness News at 7 o'clock this evening, uh, we will move on to chatting all about Time Bank. And Kun Yonka, the co-founder and chief executive, will join us on that particular one. This week, more than 300 top decision makers are gathered in Davos in Switzerland. Some people say Davos. I say Davos. In Switzerland for the 2024 World Economic Forum Annual General Meeting, the World Economic Forum is an independent international organization committed to improving the state of the world by engaging business, political, academic and other leaders of society to shape global, regional and industry agendas. That's uh, all thanks to Brand South Africa. Busi Mavuso, Chief Executive at Business Leadership South Africa. I, I found it interesting, Busi, in your weekly letter this week, you've emphasized why it is important that South Africa make a strong statement and uh, deliver a strong presence in Davos, despite the fact that we go there every year with big promises that we've yet to begin delivering upon. And it is challenging our credibility in that particular forum. I'm curious as to why we should still keep going back. (laughs) Bruce, we have to. We have to because... um Look, we are an open economy, or at least have strong features of an open economy, which means that we're not only competing with ourselves as a country, we're competing with the rest of the world. So what happens globally impacts us, and we need to be a part of that conversation, and we need to have a seat at that table. You're sitting in a country where about 60% of the GSE-listed companies are foreign-owned, so there is a strong element of interdependence, correlation, and mutuality that is critical for us as a country. Um, as a country, we're on this quest and mission of growing our economy for a while now and because we don't have domestic savings it means we're dependent on foreign direct investment to achieve that so being plugged in on global issues and being an active participant therein augurs well for us you know this year alone we would have seen that there's more than 60 head of states many of which are from the countries we'd like to strengthen or build relations with and West therefore becomes strategic as we know that there are a lot of side conversations and side meetings that take place there. And attracting investment is our main purpose. So the 50 plus strong men South Africa team that are going to divorce, uh, divorce that uh, this year uh, is obviously going to have the tough role of assuring investors that South Africa 
is the most optimal gateway to the African continent. And it is going to be a difficult sell, you know, unfortunately, Bruce. Because I think if you would have seen the global risks report of West that came out now in 2024, they are saying that the top five risks that South Africa is facing is number one in that order, energy supply shortage, economic downturn, unemployment, state fragility, and water supply shortages. So we therefore have to convince investors that, you know, if you want to uh, have presence in the African continent or grow your footprint in the African continent, South Africa is the place to be based in. But is our business case strong enough, Bruce? I'm not convinced. Very quietly, though, if you look toward the Horn of Africa, not in the Horn of Africa, but toward it, Kenya seems to be doing a lot more things right than we are doing right. They're getting their diplomacy balanced. They're getting their statements of intent right. They are talking the right sort of language around visas. They're talking about the right sort of language around investing. There seems to be a more cohesive national message that Kenya is transmitting to the world than we are transmitting at the moment. That lack of cohesion is the thing that is perhaps a bit concerning. Bruce, Kenya and the rest of East Africa is eating South Africa's breakfast at the moment. They are not even stealing it. We are handing it to them on a silver platter, you know, with the many own goals that we continue to score as a country. So there is a real shift from South Africa to East Africa as the optimal gateway to the African continent, the reality and what we should be concerned about as South Africa, you know, is the action that the global markets are currently taking, you know, uh, in terms of the decisions that they are making uh, uh, because of what's happening in South Africa. You know, they are losing confidence, Bruce. They are withdrawing capital steadily, you know, and this is evident in the minimal no foreign direct investment that is actually, uh, 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 that we're seeing at the moment. So we often underestimate how relatively insignificant South Africa is in the global economy, you know, and I think we're going to have to start behaving and understanding, you know, what, uh, what having a meaningful global presence, you know, uh, 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 would mean for South Africa or what we have to do to be able to do that. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Thomas Scafer's weight, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Scafer's weight, VW passenger car CEO last year, you know, when he spoke about their concerns about South Africa, saying that, that we are very worried about our future, yeah. you know, as VW in South Africa, he said we have to continue asking, or we have to start rather asking ourselves the question of why do we continue to produce our cars in a market that is, number one, very far from the real global market, but number two, you know, which is uh, which has so many, you know, issues, and we are fighting load shedding, we are fighting logistics, Bruce four network industry, three of them are dysfunctional. You know, it becomes difficult. If you're trying to get investors to come into this country, you know, you can't guarantee energy security. You're going to be sitting with at least 10 hours of load shedding in a day. You can't get your goods to market. Your truck is going to have to sit for five days trying to offload, you know, or trying to take goods to market. When you're trying to bring them in, you know, your containers are going to be sitting there for a while. You know, and as I'm saying, West Global Risk Report is saying water, you know, shortage and supply is going to be a serious feature and it already is a crisis depending where you're sitting in South Africa today. So we therefore have to get our, our house in order if we want to see this shift back into South Africa from East Africa. Good to you.
Thank you, Busi Mavusa, very much indeed. Chief Executive of Business Leadership South Africa. Listening to that in Davos this evening, Chairman of the Development Bank of South Africa, Ibrahim Rasul. What sort of interactions, Ibrahim Rasul, are you having in Davos? Is there that level of skepticism about South Africa and its future role? Look, I think that um, it's great being here and being able to state the case for South Africa because I think our very presence is very important and we fit right in with the World Economic Forum theme of rebuilding trust. If it means anything for South Africa, we need to rebuild trust with the world. And that is one of the major issues that we are engaged in. I think being absent is not an option because then I think we erode whatever trust there is. I think our primary message has to be to the hundreds of investors who are already invested in South Africa, the automotive companies, the mining companies, the pharmaceutical companies, they need to see us here because our primary message is stay where you are. You don't have to go. We are getting things right. The second message is to harvest new investments, to say, out of the problems of South Africa, there are opportunities. The load shedding is a fast track to renewable energy, so come and invest in that space. The logistical crunch that we have is an invitation for, for example, global ports to come in and to help us out in that, and there are financial opportunities for them as well. So I think It is the sophistication of the South African message that says, if you are there, stay. If you're not there, the problems are your opportunities. And that's what the DBSA is all about. It is here to say the renewable energy market is open. We are going to be your step into South Africa, your soft landing. We will put some of our money to show our confidence in what we are busy with. And therefore, we invite you not to take all the risks but to come and share the risks in that, whether it is water, whether it is logistics, whether it is port management, whether it is energy, whatever the case may be, I think the DBSA being here is a reassuring one because we have a great record and we are putting our money where our mouths are. Ibrahim Rasul on the line to us from Davos in Switzerland at the World Economic Forum as chair of the Development Bank of South Africa. Thank you very much indeed. Um, yeah, you've got to keep singing from the same hymn sheet in uh, the World Economic Forum. Yes, you do need to be there. Yes, you need to have a presence. It is where the world's most most of the world's most serious people all gather once a year. And if you want to be seen seriously, you've got to get there. You've also got to deliver on the promises that you make. And Ibrahim Rasul very confident since things are getting better. Many people would disagree, but uh, Ibrahim Rasul, long-term politician, of course, and now chair of the Development Bank. Let's go to Time Bank now. Co-founder and chief executive at Time Bank is Kun Yonka. There's an old saying, Kun, one swallow doth not a summer make. I see you've turned your first ever monthly profit. It's all within five years. It's all going according to plan. Is this the first of many profits, or is it that first swallow that you're not too sure whether or not the rest of his buddies are following closely on behind. Bruce, lovely to hear your voice. Um, you know, I think it's in, it's uh, sort of almost structurally embedded in a, in a business like digital banking, 
uh, that is very stable and very uh, momentum dependent, that once you've reached profitability, that you can have a high level of confidence that you will become rapidly more profitable after that. And that's really because your cost basis is, is big but yeah. stable. Uh, the business is a scale business. And once you've reached that scale, you have enough customers using you often enough, you're pretty much going to start being profitable and get m- increasingly more profitable rapidly after that. Uh, which is good news because most digital banks in the world are struggling to find a business model that one serves customers because it's so much fun in the digital world and so much easier to easier I use the term advisedly but you don't have to deal with the the bricks and mortar issues if you're building from scratch as you have done with time you're able to tailor make product and offerings and deliver digitally and provided people are connected and got the right devices it can work really well but most I think digital banks in the world are struggling to balance that service imperative, which is lots of lights and glamour and lots of funky tools and add-ons, and also pay the bills at the same time. The profitability of a digital bank is by no means guaranteed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, less than 5% of digital banks globally are profitable at present. In fact, less than half of the top 100 digital banks in the world are, are profitable and it typically takes digital banks a long time. Um, we, in terms of standalone digital banks, we're actually the fastest standalone digital bank uh, in the world from start to profit. Um, and, and, and partly that is because banking itself um, uh, is difficult to do profitably from a standing start. You have to get, you have to be in the market for a certain amount of time and you and you have to build scale before you can really be profitable in in a, in a game like digital banking. When you talk about profit, I mean, there are a thousand ways of measuring profit. You understand this better than most people. Um, how are you measuring profit? How are you disclosing that profit? Well, the late Charlie Munger would always say EBITDA is, and he used a term that referred to the stuff that comes out of the back end of a bull. Um, how do you yes. measure profit in the, in the world of digital banking? Yeah. You know, at a... Um, at a net operating income level, we've been profitable for a long time. What we're talking about here is a, is a is good old fashioned profit after tax, uh, and and on a on on a basis where there's no uh, accounting gym, gymnastics between the the essence of how the business operates and the number that we show in the in the PBT and profit after tax lines. Mm. Okay, and your return on equity, can you disclose that? You're a private company, there's no obligation to, but I'd be curious. Yes. No, uh, you know, as we've just turned profitable, uh, it's still very low. Our okay. target return on equity um, in the next three years is to get to 30% or above. Whoa. Uh, and, okay. um, and, and, <laughs> and, you know, our big, hairy goal for the next three year, years, uh, uh, Bruce, is is to actually be, by most measures that count, a top three retail bank in South Africa. Big, hairy, and audacious. Thank you, Kun Jonker, co-founder and chief executive at Time Bank. Thank you very much for sharing with us this evening on The Money Show. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by Absa CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned.
with collaboration through the ABSA Insight Series. ABSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to tonight's Money Show. Uh, Bronwood Williams is with us this evening. Uh, we'll introduce her more effectively in just a moment. But our, our, our big feature that we introduced toward the end of last year on signals as the world becomes more and more crazy, more and more difficult to forecast and predict, uh, we thought that would be a good idea. So we'll do that. We'll also this evening look at our Africa Business Report and then Garth McKenzie from Traders Corner is our expert this evening who will be bringing us deep insights into the world of trading as part of our investment school series. But I haven't yet told you what's coming up on your next money show and I think that was a remiss of me. So before my producers start shouting, on your next money show we've got Norman Dresselman, the Chief Executive of Retailability, a group of retail brands including Edgar's, Legit and Kido. He's our shapeshifter talking to us about what it's been like creating this particular conglomeration of retail outlets. We'll also have Wendy Nola fighting for your consumer rights and all of the big money stories and business unusual, of course, also bringing you up to speed with what's really happening in the world of money. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Well, economist Bronwyn Williams regularly posts uh, signals, videos on her social feeds. I think she does it daily. Uh, She's an economist, a futurist and a hard worker, constantly looking out for signs in the global environment which provide clues as to what the big issues are that are brewing in the world. Issues that you might not yet be completely cognizant of and issues that could become big stories into the future. We introduced the weekly signals feature last year simply because they were just so many things that we can't accommodate in a regular news day but we were looking for really interesting ways of telling stories about how the world is changing incrementally sometimes mainly on micro steps towards the uh, towards the future and by the time they've happened you go how did that happen it's because nobody pointed out the signals to you and i recently noticed that the rental firm hertz and uh, its holding company hertz global holdings has been selling 20,000 electric vehicles, including Teslas, from its American fleet. It's about two years after a deal with Tesla to offer its vehicles to rent in another sign that EV, or electric vehicle demand, has cooled. Hertz says, instead, it's going to opt for more petrol-powered vehicles. What? Why? Really? EVs, apparently, more expensive to fix when they get involved in accidents. It's pricier to do than to fix fossil fuel vehicles, for example. Previously, it had said it would convert 25% of its fleet to electric by the end of this year. Clearly. That's not going to happen. Bronwyn Williams, who is the trends analyst and also an economist, is with us this evening. It's an interesting switch, isn't it, Bronwyn, looking at the mighty Hertz Corporation doing an about turn or a U-turn in this particular case on its vehicle fleet. Yes, I think it's quite interesting case study on, um, shall we say, pragmatism versus policy or perhaps how sometimes when our values have to have a bit of a price, and in this case, quite an expensive price, it sometimes makes us choose slightly different choices. I think it's interesting just to sort of continue on from your point that they are talking about taking these off the road because they're too expensive to repair. They're also saying that they're having more accidents, that the the people who rent the cars crash these electric vehicles more than they crash the old ones. 
probably because it feels a bit different to drive than the sort of cars you've been driving before. It doesn't have the same audio cues. There's a whole lot to unpack here, but I think that perhaps the most interesting part of these sorts of signals is what's happening not just with the EV market, but also with the world of ESG and the world of investing. I mean, there was a very interesting survey that came out just a couple of weeks ago uh, looking at young people and what they're planning to invest in. And they run the survey every year. So it's got panel data. Of course, opinion data comes with a huge pinch of salt. It's what people do, not what they say that matters. But young people, particularly millennials and Gen Zs, that's people under the age of 40 who are in, into investing, are not even pretending to say they're going to invest in ESG or sustainability-linked stocks anymore. They just want the financial return. So not even saying they have those sorts of values anymore. And I think that these sorts of pragmatic stories about having to choose between profitability and in the short term as opposed to longer term value-based strategies are quite a sign of the times. I mean, people are concerned about the economy, not just here in South Africa, but globally too. And when businesses have to make choices, they have to make choices based on the bottom line, based on that shareholder value, Trump stakeholder value in a pinch. I think these are the sorts of things we're seeing. There's another story here with the EVs in particular, and that is that when it comes to switching towards new economies or sustainable economies or greener economies, it's not something that can be done in isolation. It's something that has to be done in step with the rest of the market. EVs are not something that can be adopted by even the best meaning company with the biggest pockets to, to back their values if the infrastructure and the societal education in this case is not up to par. Until there are charging stations everywhere, it's not practical to drive these vehicles from a demand perspective. At the same time, if people don't know how to drive them, if they haven't been taught how to drive these cars yet, yeah. the world is not ready. But even big, if our first movers <laughs> are prepared to sort of take that cost on the chin, it's not something one person could do. It's something we all kind of have to do together which unfortunately might require some sort of policy coordination as much as a sort of cringe to say that if we want to see these things executed. It's not sure. something that will be done naturally very easily by the so-called market is really what I'm saying to some of those two key threads. But we get caught up in the hype cycle of almost every trend, whether it be crypto, mm, whether it be <laughs> NFTs, whether it be um, the switch to EVs. The future clearly is electric. Look, Elon Musk has changed the world of motoring and we all fall into the trap of going, OK, this is the new trend. Suddenly pragmatism kicks in. And I was fascinated when I went to <laughs> COP28 in, the, uh, in um, uh, the UAE last year in Dubai. And the outcome of that wasn't what the environmentalists wanted. The environmentalists wanted a commitment no. by countries to ban cars. And um, the, the fossil fuel industry pushed back very strongly. They were hosting the event and said, no, no, we, we, we commit to reducing over time, no specific time frames, no particular targets in terms of reduction, but we commit to try and be better and to, to switch to more sustainable modes of transport into the future, not committing to abandon fossil fuels. And that's leads to rage, of course. And so much of this, because of the way communication has changed in the world, um, outrage is so much easier to ignite than it used to be. And maybe that's what's fueling some of these trends. It's a mix of outrage, optimism, exuberance, and excess of, of both of those things. Well, I think that you do touch on something there. Something that we talk about is luxury values. Values that the, the wealthy or wealthy parts of the world can sort of afford to yeah. adopt that, that might not be in quite the same interests of people who might have more pressing problems or priorities. So I'm not trying to make a moral judgment here, although it does kind of 
2018 sound that way. But the, the COP28 was so revealing. I read some of the op-eds that came out of that and there seems to be absolutely no middle ground between what some of the European delegations are saying and what uh, some of the Middle Eastern delegations are saying. They're talking entirely uh, cross paths with each other. I think there was even some skepticism whether fossil fuels were even causing climate change that was suddenly presented at the climate conference. So there's very different opinions in the world. And what has shifted, I would say, probably over the last sort of six months is that, that a whole, whole lot of ideas that we have taken for granted among the, the luxury value classes, if you want to make such a sweeping judgment, things like ESG, things like diversity and inclusion, to use the American term in a very American way, that was sort of taken for granted as things that nice people would do differently. Uh, why would you not do this, have been challenged largely because they've become so cynical in their implementation. And these sorts of ideas of cynicism around concepts like ESG in particular, I think are spilling over into the market right now. The market has almost been given permission due to some of the really absurd kind of disconnects between ESG accounting solutions versus accountability in the in the real world solutions to back away from their physical commitments towards these causes. So what you're seeing with Hertz is that they kind of now have the market permission to act in this way. That's why I brought up the young investors who are no longer professing yeah. to even want to invest in these stocks. And that's largely because we have tried to quantify our values as a society. We've tried to, instead of doing the right thing, we tried to be paid to do the right thing. I mean, this is what ESG is also. I mean, ESG brought us net zero power ships. Let's, let's be honest there, right? I mean, this is, this is what turning values based shifts in society into accounting conditions will do. And that, of course, cracks open huge cynicism around even the businesses that are trying to transition and the countries that are trying to transition towards a cleaner, greener economy. So I think, I think there's some lessons to be learned there in terms of policy and in terms of differences between, say, markets for bads and changing values from a demand perspective up. Hertz is just such a wonderful example of all these things colliding, both the PR stories, the narrative shift, the sentiment shift, and of course the, the shift towards more pragmatism that is now almost being permitted. And when one business like Hertz does it, you likely you kind of have courage from other CEOs too to to challenge norms in society yeah. and to to back stakeholders again. So I would say it's yeah, if you look at your head, sort of trends, the the debate around shareholder versus stakeholder value is back on on the table, though we kind of had that as settles over the last couple of years. Yeah. I think that perhaps some of the, the larger NGOs and bigger bigger schemes that have devolved into scams have, have opened a wish for, quite frankly, kind of justifying quite bad behavior. No, exactly right. And uh, yeah, the you, we've got to go beyond the hype and that, that's what we seek to do on our signals feature and no one better to help us through that process than Bronwyn Williams, who is the trends app. She is um, somebody who looks very closely at signals each and every single day. If you follow her on social media, you will see her doing that. She's the future finance specialist at Flux Trends this evening with our big trends feature. And that, of course, is called Signals on a Tuesday night. Yeah, Hertz bucking a global trend, having to put pragmatism above PR, above what is what may be believed at one point was expected of it and decided to sell down its fleet of electric vehicles. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Action-led insights in Africa's agricultural sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP.
The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. To the Africa Business Report, we go now. And Daniel van Dalen is a senior analyst at Signal Risk. There's that word again. Uh, with our Africa's focus, the elections in the DRC. Just bring us up to speed as to where we are in the process and what to expect as the dust settles on this one, Daniel. Ended up being a bit of a contentious build-up, a lot of mudslinging about um, the legitimacy of the vote. Ended up seeing President Felix Shizuketi re-elected with over 70% of the vote, um, while his sacred union coalition is set to effectively expand its legislative majority. The new National Assembly will convene on the 29th of Jan. Um, you know, despite a bit of contentious, you know, positioning by the opposition, all scenes, all processes seem to be legitimate. Um, very different to the 2018 election where, you know, Chizuketi's first election was a bit contentious and still remains um, a bit disputed. Um, his, there, are a bit, there are quite high expectations for his second term as his first, at least for the first, you know, three years um, we're a bit constrained by a hostile National Assembly, um, still populated by Kabila loyalists. However, his reform momentum um, really picked, up, picked, up, picked up speed towards the past you know, two years of his term as the sacred union took over power. Um, and we saw a big push for reforms in the commercial environment, um, promotion of foreign direct investment, and major pushes for reforms in the mining sector. Um, you know, I was recently in the DRC, and there was general consensus among the private sector that things are heading in the correct direction. So, like I said, there are high expectations that we will see this reform momentum accelerate. Um, but more importantly, I think there's two things that we'll be looking out for in the second term, and is basically how he will facilitate the DLC's role um, in the critical mineral cold war, if you will. Um, you know, the country has a vast supply of copper, cobalt, untapped lithium, all things are needed for green, new generation technologies. Um, you know, and ultimately who the DRC aligns itself with will have a, an advantage in that respect. China currently holds a massive share in the mining sector, but under Chizuketi, we have seen a bit of a courtship by the West, um, particularly the U.S. under a Biden administration who has promoted a green energy agenda. Um, and in turn, the, Ch- the Chizuketi administration has been receptive. Um, so we have seen that this bit of a foreign policy shift from the East to the West. Um, you know, and now the U.S. is backing major critical mineral projects, which, you know, one of them could see the DRC alongside Zambia produce electric vertical batteries in the coming years. Um, you know, we are expecting that the DRC's alignment will remain, you know, along with the U.S., but it, to quote a U.N. official from the DRC, it wouldn't be DRC without a few shakeups. Um, the government is not naive. It knows its strategic value. So it's foreign policy and critical mineral position in terms of partners will shift to where it believes it will have the greatest benefit. Um, you know, while that at present is the U.S. Um, and we could see this relationship grow, if we see a you know a shift in the U.S. administration in the upcoming elections, we could see a return to China or even the UAE as we uh, as they have kind of emerged as a new partner in the DRC. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating part of the world, and it's. Been- a part of the world that has been so fraught for so long to get some stability in that part of the world um, would do, just do so much not only for the DRC itself but for a, a really fraught region of the continent, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, obviously there's a long history there from the Congo Wars and things haven't quite settled yet. Um, you know, the, e- the EAC now in itself is seeing a bit of divisions. So, uh, yeah, I, I think unfortunately the DRC's stability is key for the wider region and uh, you know some actors are not necessarily making that easier <laughs>
Absolutely. What about Ghana? The, there is a, a massive effort to restructure Ghana's external debt. Have they managed to pull it off? Yeah, so on Friday, a big announcement came out that Ghana had reached an agreement with its bilateral creditors for the restructuring of around $5.4 billion in external debt. Um, you know, this is one portion of the wider re- external restructuring process. They still need to reach a similar agreement with commercial creditors over restructuring around $15 billion in debt. Um, however, you know, this provisional agreement, well, not provisional, but this agreement on Friday nonetheless unlocks the next tranche of funding under an ongoing IMF program to a tune of about $600 million. And we'll see the World Bank um, facilitate uh, new funding agreements worth about $400 million. But at the end of the day, you know, as these debt milestones progress, this will ultimately, um, you know, support Ghana's economic recovery underpinned by what is quite an ambitious fiscal reform program following its huge downturn in 2022. Um, you know, reaching these debt milestones are also key for the restoration of market confidence in Ghana, which too took a significant knock. Um, you know, what was uh, historically known as quite a safe investment destination, um, you know, warning signs began to emerge from 2020, 2021, that it was quickly running out of money following years of sustainable borrowing habits. Um, you know, and already after this deal was signed, quickly we saw how investor confidence was immediately peaked because we saw Ghana's dollar bond rally and the city began to strengthen, which are generally key, um, you know, to Ghana's gen- overall balance of payment position, specifically the local currency. Um, you know, so not to quote the finance minister too much, but it really does appear that Ghana has turned a corner um, on its road to recovery. However, will this be enough um, as Ghana goes into elections in December where the ruling NPP party is going to try and secure re-election for a third time? Um, you know, when it has overseen one of the country's worst economic periods, inflation peaked at 50% in 2022. It's remained elevated since, despite some improvement. Um, you know, grievances are going to give uh, the NPP a little bit of a challenge, and they could well lose to the NDC. Um, you know, and ultimately, the NPP might fall to the curse of not being able to break the eight, which is a phrase used to describe a political trend in Ghana where no government has uh, ever managed to remain in power for more than two four-year terms. Yeah, it's, it's such a pity. The, the potential of Ghana is one of those things that you, you know, like South Africa's potential, I suppose, that you go, oh, come on, surely we can do better. Surely we can do better. Rwanda, I mean, it's Tito Mboweni's favorite place in Africa outside <laughs> of his small corner of personal and Pumalanga, of course. Um, and uh, Rwanda, there's a bit of friction. I mean, is it economic friction? Is it political friction? Is it more serious than that? I like to think as Rwanda as the Jack Russell of the EAC, but it's got enough <laughs> military power to have a bit of a, a pit bull to follow through with it. Um, so on Thursday, last week Thursday, Burundi closes border with Rwanda and suspended bilateral ties. This followed Burundi accusing Rwanda of supporting a rebel group called Red Tabara, which carried out an attack in Burundi in December. Um, importantly, Burundi is the second country to accuse Rwanda of backing a rebel group seeking to destabilize an EAC member after the DRC has blamed Rwanda for the current M23 insurgency um, in the east of the country. Um, unlike Burundi's claim, DRC's accusations against Rwanda have been proven by the UN. Um, you know, Rwanda is also well known to have backed M23 during a similar incursion in 2012. Um, I think whether Burundi's claims are accurate or not, or whether they are perhaps deflecting on their own um, failings, they do nonetheless place Rwanda and the wider EAC in a very interesting position 
as you now have two EAC members accusing another of being actively militarily hostile towards their own interests. Um, you know, the DRC has threatened war against Rwanda as recently as December. This morning, um, there was an incident on the common border and a Congolese soldier was killed by a Rwandan soldier. Um, you know, we've also seen the SADC intervention mission, which South Africa is leading in the Congo. This will also see Tanzania fight against M23, which does include Rwandan soldiers. Um, you know, so we are heading towards a scenario where we could see EAC soldiers fighting against one another within the DRC. Oh. Um, you know, Rwanda's hostile engagements in the region and potential for open conflict are being taken into account by investors. Um, you know, people that we are chatting to are asking us what's the potential ratings agency are taking this into their calculus. IMF is raising concerns. Um, you know, diplomatic people that we spoke to in December definitely said there was a point where they were genuinely concerned the brinkmanship, that tipping point was there. Um, you know, Rwanda is gradually losing its goodwill among the likes of the U.S. and France, while Kagame, President Kagame is trying to claw some of that back from the U.K. with this whole migrant deal. Um, but that being said, you know, Kagame is not new to this. He has been a bit of a, a thorn in the side of the region since the 90s. And um, he knows how to navigate the West. He knows how to navigate the region. Um, you know, and I think ultimately their actions would fall short of a move that would perhaps compromise the Rwandan economy, which, you know, despite everything that's going on, is one of the fastest growing, massive uptake in investment. Um, you know, it would remain solely reliant on donor support. But I think, like I said, he'll avoid that tipping point and not to, you know, but like Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold, but he'll stay in the middle. Um, to avoid anything that would jeopardize his political position and the economy at large. Thank you so much. A fascinating insight. Daniel van Dalen, the senior analyst at Signal Risk, on the line to us this evening. The Africa Business Focus is... The Money Show. Investment School. Investment School brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank, built for your business. We've been chasing each other around the internet, chasing each other around the airwaves. It feels like for months now, but finally we've managed to get diaries properly coordinated. And we've got Garth McKenzie on the radio tonight, the founder and editor of traderscorner.co.za. Talking trading this evening, and your world of trading, Garth, is filled with wondrous jargon. It's filled with all kinds of technical bits and pieces. But you very good at keeping it human. Uh, broadly speaking, uh, is the world offering many trading opportunities at the moment? I mean, I, I guess it always is, but it just feels so meh from an investment perspective. I wonder what the trading opportunities are looking like. Yeah. yeah. Uh, good evening, Bruce. It's very good to be with you again. Thanks for the opportunity. So yeah, trading opportunities, well, yes, they, they are always around. Uh, as long as there's some level of volatility in the market, there's always some opportunities for, for trading. Um, but you do need to be selective. It's, it has been a little bit thin, I think, of late in terms of opportunities. But, you know, having said that, there, there are always opportunities. If you fish around and you've got access to uh, yeah, a number of products in a number of different markets, there are always opportunities to take advantage of somewhere. The key, of course, is to be on the right side of those opportunities because just because the opportunities exist doesn't always necessarily mean that you're going to make money out of them. You, you've got to be on the right side of the movement. 
Traders like volatility. They like the the increased action within markets. There just doesn't seem to be that much volatility happening in markets. The so-called VIX index, the volatility index, has been fairly muted, I think, of recent times, as the world has appeared to be going to a period of more sort of boring stability, which is long overdue, uh, lower interest rates and things perhaps calming down a bit. Yeah, that's right. So that VIX index is that you refer to. It's the Chicago Board Options Exchange Volatility Index. And it's it's what options traders in the U.S. use to price up options on the S&P 500. So low volatility is typically associated with markets that are fairly calm or complacent. And high volatility is associated with markets that are very volatile, very uh, afraid, very fearful, Um and for that reason, it's often colloquially referred to as Wall Street's fear gauge. So, you know, high volatility readings indicate high levels of fear. And typically, you'll find that volatility spikes when markets fall hard. But when you have the type of market environment that we've had over the last, particularly the last two months in the U.S., where it's just been grinding steadily higher day in and day out without a particularly big intraday trading range, then your volatility level does come right down. And that's where we sit right now. The volatility index, that that VIX index that you refer to, is currently sitting at levels that, are, if I'm not wrong, I think are like three-year lows back to 2021, which was also a very low volatility year. So, yeah, we're sitting with really not a lot of volatility in the market at the moment. But, of course, the, the, the counter to that thinking is that low volatility never lasts forever. And usually very low volatility regimes are sooner or later, you see volatility picking up. And we all know, I think this year has potential for a lot of volatility, but it's just not (laughs) showing up as yet. No, it's not. Maybe this is the quiet before the storm, as they say. Um, Low volatility, I suppose, is, is, is bad and is potentially damaging as very high volatility i mean you you're unusual from a trading as a trader if people have got the wolf of wall street image in their minds of a trader i think you're the antithesis of that you're a very calm trader you're a conservative trader you're somebody who takes fairly long-term positions for somebody who calls themselves a trader um i don't think you're wild about the massive volatility spikes that we see when things do run awry or do you like it no, I, I don't like it. I mean, I don't like extremely high volatility. At the same time, extremely low volatility is also difficult to work with. But, you know, the, the, the type of extreme volatility that you get, for example, during uh, the COVID pandemic, when that all kicked off in March 2020, the, the VIX index spiked to levels that were last seen during the financial crisis in 2008. So, yeah, that, that is not friendly. That's, you've got to be very, very careful on your risk management to trade in that sort of an environment. Uh, and yes, of course, it can create a lot of opportunities, but just as much as it can create opportunities to make a lot of money, it can create opportunities to lose a lot of money. So I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of massively volatile markets. I like some volatility, but not too little like we have now. Um, and if you had to say to me, what's the sort of the right number? I would argue that I quite like it when the VIX reading is around about 20. That's enough volatility to work with but it's not too extreme and it's not too quiet either. 
is is the vol- is the VIX index a bit like the Richter scale? Um, impossible to understand for for, <laughs> for normal humans, or is it a normal scale of like one to a hundred and twenty is a good number? How how does it work? Yeah, so I mean, look, you seldom get it moving below. Um, about 10. I'm actually just going to bring it up on my screen right now to tell you exactly what it is trading at right at this moment. So at the moment, we've got VIX at, at 14, which is low. Um, but anything sort of 20 is, is fairly normal volatility, historically speaking. And then if you, in anything sort of north of, uh, of 30, I would say is, is quite high volatility. You don't see that too often. Um, and as I say, it went up as high as 80 during the COVID pandemic. And that's the same height that it reached during the financial crisis in 2008. And of course, uh, investors who were around in both of those situations will know it wasn't much fun. We saw massive capital losses on shares during that time. And it was very difficult to keep your head cool during such an extreme level of volatility at that stage. Now, the, people get very excited about trading. People go, oh, I want to become a trader because they've seen it in the movies and they think it looks sexy and they think you can do it in your underpants in your basement or they think you can drive a Porsche or they think it's just the easy way to make money because all you've got to do is take the right bet on markets and the money just drops into your account. If it was that easy, um, everyone would be making money. The trouble is with trading, as with most things in the world, where you have a winner, you have to have a loser, right? Because mm. people are yeah. making bets on price movements, uh, anticipating either a, a, a loss or either a gain. It's not, you know, trading is not a foregone conclusion, really. Absolutely not a foregone conclusion. In fact, anything but, Bruce. And if you have a look at the, the CFD providers, CFD stands for Contract for Difference. Um, that's a, a derivative product that is quite widely used by traders around the world. The, the regulation states that CFD providers have to disclose what percentage of their clients lose money. And if you go to any of the big CFD providers, you'll see it right there on the home page at the top of the screen. It'll tell you how much or what percentage of their traders uh, lose money. And I watch this quite quite carefully with a bit of interest, and it's always somewhere between 70% and 80%, sometimes even higher than 80%. So, you know, what, it, what it's telling you is that on average, three out of four clients who try to trade can't do it. They lose money. And, and that's not to say that the other one out of four who are, are not losing are, are, are absolutely smashing the lights out and driving Porsches and flying around in, in helicopters. That's not the case at all. A lot of them will just be muddling along and maybe getting by with small losses and small gains, and they just kind of track along sideways. There's a very, very small sliver of people who can do it successfully, less than, I'd say less than 5%, but I mean, the ones that are driving around in Porsches and things are, are possibly even less than 1% of people who attempt to trade. So, I think it's very important to just disclose that to the listeners and and make them aware that this is not an easy game. It really is not. It's very very difficult to master it. And if you think that you are going to go, you know, on a quick weekend course and learn about some technical analysis <laughs> and a, you know and then rock up on Monday and be able to yeah. trade and and order your Porsche, well, think again. You know, I, I often say to people, you know, it's, it's a similar comparison. If you went down to your your local golf course and took a few lessons with the the local golf pro and bought yourself a set of clubs, 
do you think that after a week of you know practice with the club pro you'd be able to then uh, oh yes you know join the I, I, join I, the PGA and play golf for a living <laughs> I, I believe yeah, it's just, completely which keep, it's the that's the thing that keeps you coming back and I think it's the same disease that captures amateur traders because they think at some point I've got to get this right in the same way as hackers on the golf course think at some point I've got to get this right um, and yeah, yeah very seldom does it come true in either case talk to me about a couple of a couple of terms I've been seeing recently this idea the concept of position sizing it's a bit of trader jargon explain it yes it's it's a very important component of your risk management as a trader uh, and and as we are talking about trading here we must just make sure that the listeners are aware of this we're talking about trading we're not talking about investing and the different the disciplines are actually quite different in how you go about them now as we're talking about trading position sizing is very important um, and I'll give you an example of how we do this. Uh, typically, if you are a trader, you have access to leveraged products like CFDs, as I mentioned. And these products enable you, by virtue of the leverage that I mentioned, you can take position sizes that are bigger than the capital that you've got in your account. In fact, you can take position sizes that are quite substantially bigger than the capital in your account if you wanted to. It's not advisable, but you could if you wanted to. Now, it's very important that you size your position correctly so that you you don't have a too, great, too much of an aggressive exposure if things should go wrong. And it's also very important that you have a stop loss whenever you put a trade on such that you know at which point you're going to call it and say, well, this trade's clearly not working for me. I'm, I'm down a bit of money. I need to then exit because clearly whatever I thought was going to happen is not happening. So if we break it down into a, a very simple example, let's just say for argument's sake, you have a trading account with 50,000 Rand in it. The general sort of rule of thumb is that you shouldn't lose more than 2% of your capital on any individual trade. So if you've got 50,000 Rand in your account, 2% of that means you can lose 1,000 Rand on an individual trade. Sure. And if you lose a thousand rand on an individual trade, well, the nice thing is you've still got 49,000 rand left over so that you can come and try again and again and again. Now, how do you size your position correctly when you, in, in that situation? Now, let's again think of an example where perhaps you buy a share for a hundred rand a share and you want to ensure that your stop loss is five rand away from that. So 95 rand is your stop loss. So what it means is that you've effectively got five rand per share as risk per share on that situation. And your maximum capital risk that you're willing to lose is 1,000 rand, as I said. Now, to calculate your position size in that situation, you take your capital risk of 1,000 rand and you divide it by the risk per share, which we said is five rand. And if you do that, it gives you a number of 200 shares. So you can effectively buy 200 shares Priced at 100 Rand each. And if your stop loss is five Rand away from your entry price in that case, then when the stop loss triggers, you'll lose a thousand Rand and that's not the end of the world. Uh, that, that in a nutshell is how we talk about position sizing, Bruce. Um, and it's very, very important. It's a defensive strategy rather than going out and exposing yourself to all of the downside. You are perhaps limiting your upside and slowing down the process of getting the Porsche, 
but at least still leaving yourself a chance of getting a you know Toyota Corolla if <laughs> if you need a new. Well, car. that's it, and and you know the thing is, this is where I see so many amateur traders going wrong. They just don't size their positions correctly. They invariably size their positions far too big, actually. And then when it goes wrong, and it can go wrong quite quickly in the market, unfortunately, then suddenly they find themselves in a in a hole and they freeze, don't know what to do. You know, do you cut a trade? Let's say your your fifty thousand rand account that you started with suddenly is now only worth forty thousand rand because you've gone too big on a trade, it's not working, and all of a sudden you'll find that the leverage is working against you and you've 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 lost 10,000 rand out of your 50,000 rand account. Now many people in that situation just freeze. They don't know what to do and you know end up just holding on to this losing trade, watching their money gradually disappear. Or even worse than that, what a lot of amateurs will do is they will then go in and add to the losing trade to make their problems even bigger, which you really don't want to do. You you should never add to a losing trade. You should only ever add to a winning trade. You know, so these are, are simple uh, things to remember as a trader, but it's those simple things that the, so many people get wrong. You should never add to a losing trade, always add to a winning trade. Crucial advice there. But the temptation to add to a losing trade, what they call a doubling down, it's like being caught yeah. in a lie. Uh, you get caught in a yeah. lie and you go, well, uh, of course it's true, and uh, it's, I'm going to tell a new lie to amplify the lie. And if I get away with this, then I'm going to be uh, out of trouble completely. However, what generally happens when you double down on a lie is that you get caught out. And I suppose the same is applicable in markets. Absolutely true. So you, you don't want to double down. It's just it's one of the worst habits that you can get into as a trader. And it's what I've seen destroy more traders than I've you know, I've lost count, unfortunately. It's really a bad habit. So don't add to losing trades. Think about it like this. If you've got a trade on and it's not working, well, clearly your, your thesis was not correct. So why would you then want to go and make your exposure and your position even bigger to something that's not because, working? Because everyone else is an idiot except me. Hmm. And therefore you go, <laughs> well, I was right at 50. I'm even more right at 40, so I'm going to double down. I'm going to buy more. If it gets yeah. to 35, geez, now I'm a genius because I'm the only one who sees this thing at 100, and you then double down again to 35. And possibly yeah. you get the message by 30. I don't know when the message happens. Um, but it's, it's that belief, I suppose, that fundamental belief that everyone else is stupid. And whether everyone else is stupid and whether the market is wrong, there's the old saying, you will run out of money before the market runs out of patience or time or, or something along Yeah, well, it's the, I think it's the saying is um, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Yes. That's it. So, but yeah, I mean, to, 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 to what you were saying there, you know, the, the concept of um, ch shares getting cheaper. I think this is where a lot of people get, get it wrong is they think like the stock market is like the supermarket where if something was, you know, 50 rand last week and suddenly it's 40 rand, now it's 20% cheaper. Therefore, I'm getting a bargain. But in the share market, that's not how things work. You know, the share can get cheaper and cheaper and still cheaper. Um, what was uh, you know, if it's if the price is lower this week than it was last week, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bargain and that you should rush out and buy it. 
the facts can change, the environment can change, the, the earnings of the business can change, all sorts of things can change. So it, it, it's important not to get locked onto that recency bias and say, oh, well, you know, now that the share's down 20%, it's really cheap, so therefore I must rush in and buy it. It's a totally different psychology that you need to apply in the market to what you would apply in the supermarket. Now, fair enough. However, Warren Buffett told us he likes it when share prices fall because it gives him an opportunity to buy more. But he wasn't a trader. He was an investor and he had a fundamentally different approach to the valuations and was completely convinced by his methodology and very happy to double down as share prices fell. But his approach was different to the trader approach because I suppose the time frames are different. There are some fundamental differences in the in in, in the way those those you you would approach the the two aspects of putting money into investments. Yeah, very much so. So Warren Buffett is a long term investor. I mean, I think his holding time is generally perceived to be forever unless something goes horrendously wrong at the business or the facts really change badly, then he might exit. But a lot of his positions he's held for a very, very long time because he gets properly invested in the business. He really understands the businesses that he invests in and, uh, and he just sees it out for the long term. So, but the other thing to also note about Warren Buffett and, and obviously not to take anything away from his incredible success, but he's had a handful of very, very successful shares that have, that have gone very right for him. He's one of the biggest investors in Apple. I think Apple is still the biggest holding in Berkshire Hathaway. Um, long he's been by a long country term. mile. I mean, they're in an irresponsible yeah. <laughs> waiting uh, for any yeah. normal human being. Yes. Yeah. Y yeah, exactly. Um, and and uh, Coca-Cola is another one of his that he's been invested in for a very long time and remains invested in. But there's a handful of these things that have really shot the lights out for his portfolio. And what what you don't really hear about are the little ones that didn't really work out. Um, because they didn't make it, you know, they didn't become anything big like an Apple or a Coca-Cola. Um, but again, you know, he does apply good risk management in a sense, I guess, because he's not, um, he, you know, he's running his winners. He's holding on to those big winners and allowing them to become a massive part of his portfolio, whilst the ones that are, are, are not performing, I suppose he doesn't add to those or he perhaps trims them back if things are, are, are not doing what they should. Which is a good is a good process, and yeah, he's widely regarded as probably the most successful investor in the world. So, and his his track record and, shows that. And, and also, when you've got the size of positions that he has in these companies, and if they are good cash generators and dividend payers. He is really unconcerned about the short-term movements in share prices. He is concerned about ensuring that there's a regular cash flow. He's getting regular dividend flows from these investments that the the companies are generating him a return, a real return. And for traders, it's about the 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 the, the opportunity to make a capital return. Whereas he's going, well, you know, I'll get the capital eventually. The market will wise up to the way I see this company. But actually, what I want is. Yeah, a nice amount of cash coming out of the business, a share of those profits each and every single year. Yeah, absolutely right. And that's that's the point of investing, which is what he does so successfully. 
Trading is a pretty different different discipline, uh, and it requires a different skill set to to long term investing. You know, in trading, you are more looking to try and take advantage of the volatility in the market, try and see where there's short term opportunities to to get in. And when I say short term, you know, trading you can be anything from an intraday trader, where you hold for ten minutes or or less than that even. Or you can be a sort of a more of a swing trader, which is what I am, where you hold for perhaps a couple of days to a couple of weeks or, or maybe even a couple of months uh, to try and take advantage of volatility in the share prices. But it's a different skill set completely to long term investing. And I think it's just important to differentiate that. And and for I think for the average person out there who wants to give trading a go, you view it as an asset class within your bigger investment portfolio. So you know, you'll have your investments like, for example, property and shares and maybe some bonds or some policies, unit trusts, whatever. And perhaps you take 5% of your capital and say, you know what, I want to actually try and have a go at trading with some of my cash and use a small amount to do it, you know, but then apply the correct trading principles to that portion of your capital and understand that it's, it's a different discipline to long-term investing, and it needs to be treated as such. Garth McKenzie, thank you very much for joining us. Wonderful to have you on. Founder and editor at traderscorner.co.za on The Money Show, headmaster of the Investment School this week.